right, we've now covered the county rights principle. And that is uh, as close to an ideal free society as we're probably going to get, certainly much closer than what we have today anyway. And we've also seen how America enjoyed this high level of freedom in her early colonies. And the question then becomes, if society was so free and things were so great, how was that freedom lost? How did we get from basically free to behemoth welfare, warfare state, really empire, if you want to be honest, filled with all kinds of taxation and corruption and central government domination? Well, the conservative sociologist Robert A. Nisbet tells a story. He said that in the year that he was born, that was 1913, the only contact the average individual ever had with the federal government was the post office. But in that same year, we got the income tax amendment, and we got the Federal Reserve Act, and we got a few other things, by the way. Uh, but both of those things certainly have since financially enslaved the average person to the federal government, overriding and consuming roles of the state and local governments in many places along the way, some of which were already paved, by the way. But both of these new developments were, of course, far beyond the society envisioned by most of the framers in 1787, and even further beyond that of colonial America. So perhaps this was the turning point. Well, it was a turning point, certainly. But the erosion of local sovereignty and local freedoms has mostly been a long, slow, gradual process. Although, granted, it was punctuated at key times, usually wars, by rapid increases in centralized power. Uh, many people rightly point to one or more of those rapid government power grabs, the Civil War, the Wilson War State, uh, the left of progressive era, FDR's New Deal, LBJ's Great Society, Vietnam, Patriot Act, Obamacare, goes on and on. Some people have even pointed to much earlier than that, that abuses against the Constitution took place as early as Jefferson's administration unprecedented and unconstitutional, many would argue, was the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Uh, but it's just as important, I think, to look at the root of all that to see what has allowed those great power grabs to take place to begin with. And thus, the thing that has enabled that long, slow, gradual erosion from the start, punctuated by those uh, quicker uh, uh, moments. I would argue personally that the first round and the most hotly contested round of the debate between proponents of centralized power on the one hand and proponents of freedom on the other came in this country with the Constitution of 1788. It was that document that enabled the proponents of centralized power to carry out their various agendas at various points in subsequent U.S. history whether their encroachments advanced rapidly or slowly and gradually. Now, without state power over local sovereignties, collected and vested in one central institution, these types of abuses that we've endured would have been much more difficult for the tyrants among us, at least, if not almost impossible. And ironically, nearly all of the various forms of tyranny that we suffer and decry today were predicted and denounced by the people fighting against the ratification of the Constitution. Many of the principal fathers of the American Revolution saw today's problems already in their time. 
And despite the common sentiment in today's textbook versions of American history, these very prescient men are the least known, the least read, and, and in many cases completely forgotten. They are not Washington, Madison, Hamilton, all those guys. They are not the authors of the Federalist Papers. Okay, these latter guys were the tyrants in the eyes of the guys that I'm referring. Who I'm talking about are the authors of the so-called, and I would say misnamed, anti-federalist writings. Few people today have even read the much more famous federalist papers. They were not taught about those in school very much. And, and their language, when we are taught about them, is, concepts and language are often way too lofty and difficult for school children, even high school children, despite the fact that they were just newspaper editorials of their day. Okay. Few people even know about them enough. Fewer people even read them. And I would argue, in fact I know I'm right, that even fewer people read the majority position of the day, the Tea Party types of their day, and these are called the Anti-Federalists. And yet, these liberty-minded leaders saw the centralizing forces at work during their day as the sinews of tyranny that would destroy the nation. They knew absolutely where centralized government power would lead. And on this principle, they opposed the Constitution itself because it ceded too much power to a central authority. Now let me give you some examples. One of these men writing under the pseudonym, and they all wrote under pseudonyms, uh, the Federal Farmer, was possibly Richard Henry Lee. He foresaw the direction of centralizing power as a departure from a free society, but also as the long-term agenda of a very few ambitious leaders. And he said this, quote, The plan of government now proposed, that's the Constitution, is evidently calculated totally to change in our time our condition as a people. Instead of being 13 republics under a federal head, it is clearly designed to make us one consolidated government. This consolidation of the states has been the object of several men in this country for some time past. Whether such change can be effected without convulsions and civil wars, whether such a change will not totally destroy the liberties of this country, time only can determine. Now the number of the writings of these more freedom-minded individuals well outnumbered those who were in favor of the new Constitution, and by most accounts, the number of those actual people who, could, who opposed the Constitution uh, greatly outnumbers those who desired it. The problem was, as with most decentralized forces that are forced quickly to debate on some kind of a central national stage, they simply lacked the political machine they didn't have the ambitious lawyers, the financiers, uh, who wanted the Constitution to pass for various reasons. So in short, the scenario was one in which the forces of freedom had numbers on their side, but the forces of centralization were a step ahead uh, because of having good organization, having good planning, political machine, uh, ambition, energy, and all of those things on their side. Now without rehearsing too many of the quotations of the anti-federalist writers, uh, I think it's convenient here to use the summary that one of their writers provided of their main concerns, and his name uh, that he wrote under was a plebeian. And he provided a summary of the chief objections to the Constitution among writers, he said, throughout the United States. So among other things, uh, these are the things he warned against. Number one, 
it is calculated. It is calculated and will affect such a consolidation of the states as to supplant and overturn the state governments. Number two, the representation in general in the general legislature is too small to secure liberty or to answer the intention of representation. Number three, it gives the legislature an unlimited power of taxation, direct and indirect. Number four, it is dangerous because the judicial power may extend to cases over which, uh, which ought to be reserved to the decisions of state courts and because the right of trial by jury is not secured in the judicial courts of the general government in civil cases. That may have been later changed, I'm not sure. Uh, number five, the power of the general leg legislature to alter and regulate the time, place, and manner of holding elections will place in the hands of the general government the authority whenever they shall be disposed and a favorable opportunity offers to derive the body of the people in effect of all share of government. Number six, the mixture of legislative, judicial, and executive powers in the Senate. Number seven, the little degree of responsibility under which great officers of government shall be held. Number eight, the liberty granted by the system to establish and maintain a standing army without any limitation or restriction. Okay. In short, plebeian foresaw a surrendering of political power, of representation, of taxation, of judicial power, of military power, all to the centralized state. Now, since that's just a summary of what many anti-federalist writers had said in many places, uh, it's easy to go through those writers, whose works span seven volumes, by the way, and find these critiques very eloquently defended. And I want to give you just a few of those. One of the major writers among them wrote under the name of Brutus, and he very well might have been uh, Robert Yates, who was at the Constitutional Convention from New York and left in disgust of what he saw was going on. He decried the seemingly unlimited powers of taxation, he said, because they extended to every possible way of raising money, whether direct or indirect. Um, and under this clause, he says, and I'm going to quote, he says, may be imposed a poll tax, a land tax, a tax on houses and buildings, on windows and fireplaces, on cattle, and all kinds of personal property. It extends to duties on all kinds of good to any amount to tonnage and poundage on vessels, to duties on written instruments, newspapers, almanacs, and books. It comprehends an excise on all liquors, wines, and spirits, cider, beer, etc., and indeed takes in duty or excise on every duty or conveniency of life. In short, we can have no conception of any way in which government can raise uh, money from the people, but what is included in one or other of three general terms. We may say that this clause commits to the legislature every conceivable source of revenue within the United States." End of quote. So he saw the danger of something like that 1913 income tax within the realm of possibility within the scope of the proposed central government's powers. And it happened, of course. Well, he went on to describe this in terms of absolute invasion of personal privacy. And this is what he says, quote, this power, exercised without limitation, will introduce itself into every corner of the city and country, will wait upon ladies at their vanity, will uh, their domestic concerns, uh, to the ball, to the play, to the assembly. It will go with them when they visit and will, on all occasions, sit beside them in their carriages, nor will it desert them even at church. 
It will enter the house of every gentleman, watch over his cellar, wait upon his cook in the kitchen, follow the servants in the parlor, preside over the table, and note down all he eats or drinks. It will attend him to his bedchamber and watch him while he sleeps. It will take cognizance of the professional man in his office or his study. It will watch the merchant in the counting house or in his store. It will follow the mechanic to his shop and in his work. It will haunt him in his family and in his bed. It will be constant companion of the industrious farmer in all his labor. It will be with him in the house and in the field, observe the toil of his hands and the sweat of his brow. It will penetrate into the most obscure cottage and finally, it will light upon the head of every person in the United States. To all these different classes of people, and in all these circumstances in which it will attend them, the language in which it addresses them will be, Give, give. I say such a power must necessarily, from its very nature, swallow up all the power of the state governments. And not only did he foresee this, but he foresaw the massive administration, the administrative law, and the bureaucracy that all needed to carry this type of government out. And he said this, quote, Not only are these terms very comprehensive and extend to a vast number of objects, but the power to lay and collect has great latitude. It will lead to the passing of a vast number of laws which may affect the personal rights of the citizens of the states, expose their property to fines and confiscation, and put their lives in jeopardy. It opens a door to the appointment of a swarm of revenue and excise officers to prey upon the honest and industrious part of the community, eat up their substance, and riot on the spoils of the country. Now that language there came directly from Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Brutus was reiterating the exact same charge the colonists had levied against King George that he had, quote, sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. So the advocates of the Constitution were committing in these guys' eyes the same tyranny for which the people had just fought and died to free themselves. Even above and beyond this, Brutus criticized the proposed federal power to make all laws necessary and proper, to quote the Constitution, to carry out their desires. And he said this, quote, it is truly incomprehensible. A case cannot be conceived of which is not included in this power. The command of the revenues of a state gives the command of everything in it. He that has the purse has the sword, and they that have both have everything. So that the legislator, legislature, having every source from which money can be drawn under their direction, has a right to make all laws, necessary and proper, for drawing forth all the revenue or all the resource of the country uh, would have, in fact, all power. Okay. Now, these things alone amounted to enough to destroy state power, uh, let alone local power. But uh, he goes on and adds this. This power, in its operation, would totally destroy all the powers of the individual states. This power, given to the federal legislature, directly annihilates all the powers of the state legislatures. So there you have it. Now these, fa these fears in regard to this vast powers uh, to tax obviously came about in 1913, but they certainly didn't wait until that before they began to manifest. They materialized almost immediately after the Constitution when Hamilton proposed and then helped pass a national tax targeting that group of people with the least representation and probably the least organization and possibly the least ability to fight back, 
and that was the whiskey makers. And when they did pull together and resist tax collectors locally by force, the anti-federalist fear against a newly centralized standing army also materialized, and Washington and Hamilton themselves mounted horseback and led 13,000 troops to suppress the so-called Whiskey Rebellion. And it was a rebellion, but it was more particularly a tax revolt. So Plebeian's list, uh, representing all of these other anti-federalist writings, uh, came to pass in many ways very early. It also included a warning against the powers of a centralized Supreme Court. And he said this, quote, It is dangerous because the judicial power may extend to many cases which ought to be reserved to the decisions of the state courts. And because the right of trial by jury is not secured in the judicial court to the general government in civil cases. Others said the same thing. Brutus warned uh, clearly, quote, if the legislature pass any laws inconsistent in the senses the judges put on the Constitution, they will declare it void. And therefore, in this respect, their power is superior to that of the legislature. Another, again, the federal farmer, added the same, essentially the same thing. He said, we are in more danger of sowing the seeds of arbitrary government in this department than in any other. Another writer called Candidus, who was attributed to Samuel Adams, warned that this could, quote, occasion innumerable controversies as almost every cause, even those originally between citizens of the same state, may be so contrived as to be carried to this federal court. So this means, effectively, the end of state and local sovereignty, because a partisan court could easily construe any decision, and that decision would stand as law for every citizen in every state. And that fear also quickly materialized after the nationalist proponents pressured the states to adopt the Constitution. Within 15 years, and of course we can find cases earlier, but the famous one is from John Marshall, who framed the system when he was uh, uh, Secretary of State, I believe, and then decided the very case that he framed as he became Supreme Court Justice in Marbury versus Madison, 1803. Judged it in favor of the centralizers against the Jeffersonian view of government. Now, the decision, uh, as we all know, established the doctrine that has been euphemized as judicial review, where the Supreme Court can essentially legislate through their decisions. A little bit later, 1819, Marshall decides perhaps the most damaging case against state power until after the Civil War. That was McCulloch versus Maryland. He decided that the federal government could operate branches of the federal central bank within state jurisdictions run by unelected board members for their own profit, and the states could do nothing about it. They couldn't regulate it. They couldn't tax it or anything. Marshall reminded the states that the Federal Congress could pass whatever laws were, in those previously objected words, necessary and proper in order to carry out their other constitutional powers. And once passed, the states could do nothing to violate federal law. So people today say, well, what about the Tenth Amendment? Well, Marshall talked about the Tenth Amendment in that decision. It had been included, of course, as a means of preserving for the states all powers not delegated in the Constitution but it wasn't enough to stop Marshall. Uh, he found just enough of a hair to split in, in that law, and he said it this way, quote, even the Tenth Amendment, which was framed for the purpose of quieting the excessive jealousies which had been excited, omits the word expressly, 
and declares only that the powers, quote, not get delegated to the United States nor prohibited to the states are reserved to the states or to the people, end quote, thus leaving the question whether the particular power which may become the subject of contest has been delegated to the one government or prohibited to the other to depend upon a fair construction of the whole document. So in other words, by saying delegated instead of expressly delegated, Marshall decided that the 10th Amendment left him room to determine exactly what powers could and could not be added to the national government. It's up to the Supreme Court. And so Plebeian and those that he had represented, just as they had all predicted, the federal government uh, watched as the federal government did indeed supplant and overturn the state governments. Okay. The power of the court would keep being impressed throughout American history. 1821, you have Cohen's versus Virginia. Uh, Marshall interpreted the Constitution as extending federal jurisdiction to criminal in addition to civil cases. Uh, more limitation on state powers came in 1824. Marshall ruled against the state of New York. In Gibbons versus Ogden, he struck down a shipping monopoly that had been granted to a New York company operating between New York and New Jersey. And he did this on the grounds that federal licensing statutes took precedent over state laws, and thus a state couldn't license a monopoly uh, when engaging in interstate commerce, which was an area obviously expressly enumerated in the Constitution. Uh, we'll talk about that later when we talk about states' rights in general. States' rights were further destroyed, judicial review more firmly entrenched after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, particularly by the 14th Amendment, Things have only gotten worse over time. And so the federal farner, farmer's uh, warning has certainly come true. Uh, indeed, time has told. States' rights were hijacked by the nationalists, and it took a civil war eventually to enforce their tyranny. And of course, that's just states' rights. Uh, local sovereignty has eroded even to a greater degree because of that, or at least along with it. Many people today rightfully see the great encroachments of federal government in different points of American history, but too often we stop too short of the root cause. It's not enough to complain about the Patriot Act or FDR or the Progressive Era. These were all tragic, obviously, against the principles of liberty, but they were merely later variations upon the same theme, and that theme was played out on the original instrument of civilization. Without legislative and judicial and executive powers centralized in one place to begin with, all of the later abuses could never have been imposed on all Americans successfully. Now, while problems can also arise under decentralized systems, uh, these will not compare in any way to the tyrannies that grow from the opposite. The anti-federalist Candidus uh, warned that we must, quote, delinquish, I'm sorry, distinguish between the evils that arrive from extraneous causes and our private imprudencies and those that arrive from our government. Okay, power over vital areas of human action such as commerce, legislation, defense, Candidus realized as too precious and precarious to leave to the decisions of a few men to act on all by government force. It should rather be left as decentralized as possible. Now, this fear of, of centralization rested not only on the principles against the structure of government, but also on the fact that wise and benevolent representatives uh, would not always be found to fill the few seats of power. 
Instead, power-hungry, uh, greedy, avaricious men would seek and win those seats eventually, and the people would suffer for it. Paying lip service to the beloved leaders of his day, Candidus foresaw this, quote, Though this country is now blessed with a Washington, Franklin, Hancock, and Adams, elected leaders shall not always possess such integrity, and, quote, posterity may have reason to rue the day when their political welfare depends on the decisions of men who may fill the places of these worthies." End of quotation. So this is what was predicted by the opponents of the Constitution, and it's exactly what's happened. And state and local governments were overridden by the powers of national government. The people are not adequately represented, and self-interested powers, usually of big banks and big corporations, although special interest groups too, co-opt those few seats of power. And then these powers begin to work further to ensure the advantages of their interests via the powers of government, more powers of government. The government grows consistently over time at the expense of the very people they pretend to represent and at the expense of those people's freedoms and their wealth. This was predicted before the Constitution, it was predicted because of the Constitution, and it has occurred almost exactly as it was predicted at the time. Now, moving on from that, and probably more importantly, more important than rehearsing the historical I told you so, is to understand some of the tactics and methods that happened afterwards that helped centralize power on the states and counties, uh, even beyond what the Constitution had done. In other words, in a country where freedom and individual responsibility were perceived to be something worth fighting for, um, how in the world did the centralizers succeed? And how have they continued to succeed further for over two centuries now? Well, of course, there are many, many answers to that question. We can't go into all of them because there are many countless tactics of tyranny. Uh, but, but one of the important ones for us to realize well, I'll say two of them actually, are number one, a fairly early change in the electoral system which changed the nature of representation and given undue political power uh, to urban areas, uh, to a minority of swing voters and special interest groups. Uh, but most importantly, second, has been the rise of federal agencies with federal funds to buy off state and local governments by means of all kinds of grants and handouts in exchange for their compliance. Like many welfare and socialism uh, beneficiaries dependent upon the system as individuals, counties and local governments have just as much taken the cheese and are thereby become dependent on federal money and have thus become trapped in the system. So let's talk about these two things. First, uh, there was an assault on local power, mainly through the state governments, and the issue was the Electoral College. And that, of course, is the system which elects the president. In the constitutional design, the Electoral College exactly mirrored the, state rep the state's representation in Congress. The number of electors shall be equal to the whole number of senators and representatives. That's what it states. And while the precise manner of that was left up, or well, it wasn't specified anyway, uh, and how they were chosen and how they were charged to vote, it was left to the state legislatures to determine but the constitutional arrangement indicates that it was designed to parallel the representation they had in the congressional districts. And that was largely how it was done up until about 1832. 
And at that time, politicians got savvy uh, on how to replace local district votes with a popular statewide vote. And then they began using that as a basis for awarding all electoral votes to the statewide majority's candidate. This was party politics gone wild, and it helped solidify the modern winner-take-all two-party system at the expense of genuine local representation. Now, all the districts in any given state, because of this, may vote for a single candidate, but they can all have their votes essentially wiped out because of one highly populated urban center that distorts the overall vote in its favor, even if it's just by a percent or two. And so, uh, for example, in New York in 1824, the electoral votes were cast as follows. Adams got 26, Crawford got 5, uh, Clay got 4, Jackson got 1. In the following election in 1828, there were only two main candidates. Adam won, only 16 electors. Uh, Jackson got 20. But after the popular vote method was installed in 1832, Jackson was able to receive all the electoral votes, whereas the loser, who was Henry Clay, received zero even though he had gained 48% of the popular votes throughout the districts. And that system has continued until today. Now, the significant fact is not about who might have won or lost any particular election, but it's about the fact that a tiny majority, or I'm sorry, a tiny minority of voters, even in just one district, can swing a vast percentage of the electoral votes in all other districts combined. And so we have had, on the, uh, because of this, the rise of the swing vote the power of minority issues, uh, special interest groups, uh, and the concentration in campaigning and strategizing in just those closely divided but influential districts, all playing determinative roles in national elections. In this arrangement, for example, Chicago can overpower all of Illinois. New York City can speak for the whole state of New York, Charlotte for the whole state of North Carolina, and so on. Okay. Even in states where the rural population outnumbers any big city, a single special interest issue, like farm subsidies, can swing the difference in favor of liberals, progressives, statists, other miscreants, or whatever. It didn't used to be this way. Now, in addition to the issues of representation, the federal government has also discovered the financial means to entice local governments into accepting federal tyranny. And this is where the don't take the cheese warning really comes into play. Federal agencies and bureaus by the multiple dozens, having multi-billion dollar budgets, use grants and handouts as ways to circumvent state and local governments. And through that, impose national control and national agendas, and even international agendas, on local communities. Even without the authorization of the local people. And the basic lure is the grants of federal money, and most local district officials love extra money in their struggling budgets. But with the grants of money come restrictions, come regulations, even massive administrative legal codes imposed on entire regions of a state because of the people taking it. And so most states and most local governments are willingly subjecting their people to federal regulations so that they can increase the revenue at the expense of taxpayers and more likely the national debt. And you can bet that the federal government has figured out how effective this method is to corral and bridle local governments. In effect, they're feeding the horse sugar cubes and simultaneously slipping the bit in its mouth.
So let me illustrate the nature of this problem I'm talking about by reference to just one local agency. And that, for example, is the police department. Just as an example, local police currently have the option of applying for grants with the following federal departments. Agriculture, commerce, education, health and human services, homeland security, housing and urban development, justice, labor, transportation. That's nine federal agencies offering bribes for local government compliance to federal regulations and other strings attached. Now, within each one of those major departments, there exist numerous smaller agencies, each with their own programs, their own budgets, and their own regulations. For example, the Department of Justice alone breaks down into a few dozen major constituent offices and service bureaus. One of them, for example, the Associate Attorney General, governs several, one of which is the Office of Justice Programs. This office itself includes about 15 smaller offices, one of which is the National Institute of Justice. This institute runs several programs, one of which is the DNA Initiative, a federally funded body that makes grants to local agencies for the purpose of DNA analysis in criminal investigations up to a billion dollars total. The Department of Justice, by the way, has a budget of $27.7 billion. Now, part of the quid pro quo in just this one program is that the results of any DNA test performed must be shared with a central national database governed by the FBI. So it's the start of a national DNA registry. And this is just one local agency, or one agency, and one program in one agency. Uh, local public school districts, for example, receive on average about 10% of their budgets from the federal government, about 45% uh, from the state. Nearly all public schools, and many private schools, by the way, accept at least some degree of federal funding due to low-income families attending. Now, I don't even believe in public schooling to begin with. I think it's socialistic. But the very fact that local districts are comprised by, or I'm sorry, compromised by accepting federal and state handouts should be alarming to even those conservatives who disagree with me. And if they're not alarmed by that, it really does prove my point about how socialistic the system is. And the fact that the local schools receive over half of their funding from higher governmental agencies shows that they're stuck in those regulations and programs because they're dependent on them for the majority of their budget. Now in these cases, and in many more cases, local leaders, sometimes unelected, subject local individuals to the regulations of standards uh, of higher government bureaucracies in exchange for money. In essence, they're literally selling out local sovereignty. Local control is a commodity to be bought and sold to the highest bidder or to multiple bidders. And in these grant-related cases, the ultimate problem is not with the higher bodies, but with the local decision makers to accept the money. And one of the ironies of it is this. The federal bodies really don't even have any money to give out anyway. The money they grant is money that was created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve and then loaned to the U.S. Treasury. And then the legislature doles out portions of this funny money to federal agencies and the agencies grant it to the local governments. So the federal government exchanges funny money for local control. In essence, the federal government is buying local control for nothing. It costs them nothing. And local governments are giving up their powers for immoral, debased money. And this goes on in every county, 
in the United States today. It could end tomorrow with a city council or a school board vote or a referendum. So how was freedom in local government lost? It was lost as early as the Constitution. And that set a precedent for the continual series of federal government power grabs throughout American history. It was lost through manipulation of representation at that same level. And importantly, it is lost every day of every year as state and local governments continue taking federal money. And local governments continue taking federal and state money and subjecting their people to regulations and administrative laws of distant governments. We've dug ourselves a huge hole, although in many, many ways we could argue that the hole was dug for us. But either way, we're in a huge hole. Now, is there any possible way we can even begin to attempt to begin to get out of this hole? There's some people who say, no, we should just prepare for a collapse, uh, but I disagree. Is there any way we can begin to restore sovereignty and control at the local level? Believe it or not, I believe that there is. There are ways we can fight to restore freedom again, county by county. There are things already being done, and there are things to be done. And I will discuss those in the next talk.